it was good that we had Dale and his full head of hair to read that passage. <laughs> Let's go to the Lord. Almighty God, we have opened and read Your Word, and now as I seek to proclaim it faithfully, I ask that You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive and obey Your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I went to Uganda 26 years ago, I remember being in the town of Soroti. Uh, that's in the northern part of the country, and we were just walking back into town after being out in the bush visiting families all day and preaching the Gospel. And as we were walking back into the town, the sun had just dropped below the horizon, and there was an old man that apparently had spent the whole day drinking. And it appeared that he had just stood up because he was having a very hard time finding his balance. He was staggering around as he tried to walk. And as he was, from my vantage point, trying to walk back to home, it was not only difficult because he'd had too much to drink, but also a group of children had gathered around him and began mocking him. A child would run up from behind and poke him in the back. And when he'd turn around, another child from another direction would run up and poke him. And they were circling around and, and chanting, didn't know what they were saying. But our Ugandan interpreter knew what they were saying, and he laid into those children. Uh, he was yelling at them in Eteso, uh, but even though I didn't understand what he was saying, it was clear what he was saying. He was probably saying the same types of things that we might say to a, ch a group of children who were being rude to their elders. In our passage, we have a group of small boys doing the same thing. In every country, in every age, boys will be boys. These boys were mocking and jeering Elisha say, go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. That's not surprising that these boys might do this. But Elisha's response is most surprising. He cursed them in the name of the Lord and two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of those children to death. Um, when my wife was younger, uh, she and her family were out uh, up in the Smoky Mountains or somewhere and uh, they had accidentally wandered between a mother bear and her cubs. And so um, uh, she understands, I think, a little bit more than most of us what this must have been like. But as we jump into this passage, as a first order of business, let me set your minds at ease. This curse is not Elisha's personal revenge for being called bald-headed. Secondly, I hope to make a convincing case that this curse was not too severe a punishment for these disrespectful boys. But to understand this passage and understand this curse, we need to understand this passage within its historical and textual context. And so for its textual context, uh, the reason why Dale read uh, beginning with uh, verse uh, 21 is that 
this passage, our passage this morning, is connected to what came before. And it's not as clear to us because the English uh, translation leaves out the Hebrew uh, word bavav. Uh It's a, a straight little line with a couple of dots underneath uh, for the uh, vowel pointers. But the, the vav was the word for and. It was the symbol for and. In other words, there's a connection here between uh, the passage that I preached on last week and this passage. Um, and that's important for seeing this whole context for understanding Elisha's cursing these boys. So, uh, again, Dale read it, but I'll, I'll begin again with verse 21. Then he, Elisha, went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. And then literally, and he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some young boys or small boys came out of the city and jeered him. There's a connection here. And here's the point. Jericho, back in verses 19 through 22, last week's passage, was a city under a curse. You will remember from last week that God had placed Jericho under a curse when the Israelites had come into the promised land. They circled it several times. God called the the walls to fall down and God uh, put them under the ban, uh, told them to kill every person uh, and every animal. And He also said that they were never to rebuild the city. That if they disobeyed Him and rebuilt the city, the person who was organizing the rebuilding would set the foundations of the city at the cost of his oldest son, and that the gates of the city would be installed at the cost of his youngest child. But the Israelites persisted. They built the city anyway. And in keeping with the curse, Hael, his oldest and his youngest sons, died. But that did not reverse the curse. The water continued to be bitter. And so what Elisha is doing here is he conferred a blessing on the city of the curse. But Bethel, on the other hand, jumping into verses 23 through 25, was known as a center for God's presence. Uh, The name of the city was Beth-El. Beth means house. El means God. In other words, Bethel was known as the house of God for Israel. It was the place where Jacob had seen the stairway to heaven. It was where the Ark of the Covenant had resided before it ended up in Shiloh. The Israelites called God the God of Bethel. So there's a stark contrast between where Elisha had just been, Jericho, the city of the curse, and where he was headed, Bethel, uh, the house of God. And to further add to the contrast, Jericho, the city of the curse, received a blessing. While Bethel, the house of God, 
is receiving a curse with these she-bears mauling the children from that city. It's important to understand that Bethel did not live up to its name. Instead of being the house of God, it was one of the most detestable places in all Israel according to God. I assume most of you know that Israel was broken into two different nations. You had the northern kingdom that was called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, They broke into two separate nations shortly after Solomon died. But the people, all the people in Judah and in Israel were accustomed to coming down to Jerusalem in order to worship. Because that's where people came to worship under David's kingship, under Solomon's long kingship. So when the nation divided, the first king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, he decided that he needed to establish a new place for worship in the northern kingdom. And so he established Bethel uh, for the northern tribes to come. Bethel was about 11 miles north of Jerusalem. So any, and it was pretty close to the border uh, between Judah and Israel. So if the northern tribes on their way down to Jerusalem, they would come to Bethel and were encouraged, even commanded, to worship there rather than coming down to Jerusalem. Not only did Bethel compete with Jerusalem for the city for the center of worship, but they also in Bethel did something that was strictly forbidden. They set up a golden calf there at Bethel for the people to worship. And I assume that the people of Bethel, the people living in that city, enjoyed the prominence of being the place of the center of worship in the northern kingdom. And they also enjoyed greatly the economic benefit that would come from people all over the northern kingdom coming down and worshiping. First Kings chapter 12 explains all this. Verse uh, Kings chapter 12, verse 26, And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. This is after it had initially separated. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord that is at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to the Lord, to, Rehob- or to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. This thing became a sin for the people. And so Bethel and the worship that was taking place at Bethel was not godly worship. In fact, it was detestable to the Lord. So undoubtedly, over the years, Elijah had gone to Bethel and had prophesied against Bethel. He had denounced the idolatrous shrine. He had denounced the, the uh, Bethel as a place of worship. He had said it is detestable. It is wrong. So they hated Elijah. And now they also hate Elijah's successor, Elisha. To hate God's prophet 
and to reject the prophet's word was the same thing as hating God and rejecting God's word. So we read in Matthew chapter 10, verses 40 and 41, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And so the opposite is also true. You reject a prophet, then you reject the God who sent the prophet. You reject the prophet's word, you reject God's Word. So the Israelites who hated Elijah and also hated Elisha, they were hating and rejecting God. It should also be pointed out that when God gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites way back in Exodus chapter 20, God said, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you hear that? God said, if the parents persist in worshiping idols, the sin of the parents would be visited upon the children of those who hate God. In fact, God was very specific about the types of punishment that might have been visited upon the children of idol-worshiping Israelites. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 21 and 22 says, Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let the wild beast against you which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. Seen within the context of these promises and commandments to the Israelites, it is clear that the curse upon the children was not just petty revenge by Elisha for calling him bald-headed. Rather, it was punishment upon the parents for persisting in their idolatry, rejecting God's Word, and teaching their children to do the very same thing. The children who were jeering and mocking Elisha were only repeating what they had learned at home. So God hit those adults in Bethel in their most tender parts. Forty-two of the children were mauled to death by bears and it was ultimately the parents' fault. But it was not a punishment that ended with the deaths of the children. Leviticus chapter 26, the passage I just referred to, makes it clear that the punishment upon the children was only a precursor to something that was worse. It was a warning of what was going to happen later if they persisted in their idolatry. It was a warning that the coming generations would be carried away into exile and that many of the children would be killed along the way. And we do know from Israel's history, Assyria did invade and they were very brutal 
and cruel. Many families, many children died at the hands of the Assyrians. And so this episode here where these 42 children are mauled to death by these bears pointed to a greater judgment. It was a warning. And even for us, it points to the final and devastating judgment that awaits all who persist in hating God and rejecting His Word. There will be a final judgment and none will be exempt except those who are securely in Christ. And they, we, will pass through safely. Hebrews 9, verse 27, And and just as it is appointed for man to die once, After that comes the judgment. All of us have a destiny. Every human being has the same destiny. We will all die. We will all face judgment. Have you fled to Jesus Christ for refuge? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 7 through 9 says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now more to our immediate context. I believe this passage should serve as a warning to those of us who are parents. Just like the parents in Bethel exerted great influence over their children, we also exert great influence over our own children. Jay Kessler, one of the early directors of Youth for Christ, says this, While you wait for your teenagers to grow up, you can take comfort in the fact that by the time young people reach their mid-twenties, Their lines are almost identical to the lines that their parents drew. Even those who do not like certain attributes of their parents finding themselves following their parents' patterns. So perhaps the point is not how can we get our kids to behave as we want them to, but how can we be the kind of parents we ought to be so that when our kids are like us, we'll like who they are. Kessler's point is that if the Lord and His kingdom are not your priority, neither will they be your children's priority. When they live with us for 18 years or longer, they see us for who we really are. And whether we know it or not, whether we intend to be or not, we are always making disciples. Either disciples for the Lord Disciples for ourselves, disciples from the world. They learn from us. Our influence is exerted even when we're not trying to influence. What is important to us will very likely be important to them as well. We parents have a great responsibility placed upon us. I cannot bear to 
ponder what it will be like to look across that vast gathering of all humanity on the day of judgment and see one or more of my children on the side with the goats headed into eternal judgment while I'd be on the right hand of Christ with the sheep. And to think that I bear some of the responsibility for them being there. God intends that our children learn from our faith in Christ and be even stronger than we are. God intends that our faith be vigorous and lively. God expects that our faith be worn into every situation and every circumstance in our life. That we not just have a Sunday faith. God expects us to teach our children about God and to read to them from the Bible. God expects that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to grow, first of all, from within, as one generation teaches the next to know the Lord. In Genesis chapter nine or chapter eighteen, verse nineteen, God says of Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. He chose Abraham to be the father of a nation and to be also the father of faith. There are many passages scattered throughout the Old Testament that speak of the importance of God's covenant as the means of propagating the faith through households. And so we read in Jeremiah 32, verse 38 through 40. This is just one passage over out of many that I could have chosen. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, God told Cornelius, Cornelius, a Gentile, no less, He said to Cornelius, Send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Not arguing this morning for a whole... Um, the doctrine of infant baptism... That's not the purpose here. But I do want you to see that God intends to bless uh, households with salvation because He expects the parents to teach the children to know the Lord, to fear the Lord. He expects the church to help the families raising the Lord, or raising the children in the Lord. I believe... As Jesus called us to be fishers of men, the most well-stocked fishing pond that we have is our children's Sunday school. Our children coming up for youth for the children's sermon. I have such energy for that because I have God's promises to, to, that uh, He will be a God to us and to our children. 
Parents, let me tell you, you're not alone in your parenting. The responsibility does not rest on your shoulders alone. God has given you His Spirit to help you raise your children to follow the Lord. He has also given you His promises. He has given you a Bible-believing church family. And God will be with you as you raise your children. Truth be told, however, even with God's help and your efforts, your strenuous efforts, you giving it all you've got and the support of your church family, no parent has perfectly raised their children. We have all made mistakes. In other words, our best efforts fall infinitely short of perfection. Do we have any parents here named Jesus? Well, let me ask this. Do we have any parents here named Jesus? My point is, none of us come close to being everything we are supposed to be or doing everything we are supposed to do when it comes to parenting. We make many mistakes. And even if we have done everything that we should do and could do or could ever do, if we're the best parents in the world, our children are sinners. They are not blank slates that we get to write upon. They are born with a nature that is in opposition to God. As Dr. Krabendam used to teach me when I was a student, Children of believers are little vipers in covenantal diapers. And that brings me great hope. So, as I round toward concluding, parents, you have a responsibility to raise godly children. Congregation, you have a responsibility to help the parents. Children, You have a responsibility to trust the Lord and to follow Him. But the ultimate responsibility lies with God. He is the sovereign Lord. He elects, He wills, He chooses who will be saved or who will not be saved. In other words, our parenting is by grace. To round back to the beginning of the sermon, Jericho, the city of the curse, received a blessing. Bethel, the house of God, received a curse. In other words, the way we think things should happen very well might not happen because all things are in God's hands because He is a God of grace. I became a Christian before both of my parents became a Christian. My mom became a Christian taking my Charles Spurgeon books that I would bring home Charles Spurgeon not to give to her, but to read myself. And she would read them and dog ear every page. There were maybe three pages she didn't dog ear. And I love books and I couldn't believe she was doing that. But she became a Christian. And then I went to Uganda. And I was telling my mom about one of the sermons that I had preached. And my dad walked into the room. He said, if what you're saying is true, I'm not a Christian. And then he walked out. 
In other words, I don't want to hear anything about it, but I need to think about some things. And all of a sudden, his prayers begin to change. All of a sudden, his life begin to change. In other words, um, the last was first. Our God is a God of grace. Regardless of what mistakes you've done as parents, regardless of where your parent, your children are, your children may be grown and out of the house and not walking with the Lord. God is a God of grace. We bear responsibility as parents. The children bear responsibility before the Lord. The church bears responsibility before the Lord. Ultimately, things are in God's hands. And I know you parents are probably doing the same thing I've done. You begin immediately trying to figure out what percentage is mine, what percentage is my children, what percentage is God. Here's the percentages. You bear 100% responsibility, parents. You are called to uh, raise your children in the knowledge of the Lord. Children, you bear 100% responsibility before the Lord. You are called to trust the Lord wholeheartedly. God bears 100% of the responsibility. And that responsibility, in that responsibility, He has the priority. And He is, He has the efficiency. We can do everything right. And those children, no child will come to know the Lord unless the Lord draws that child to Himself. So, the point that we need to end with is trust in the Lord. Regardless of your parenting and the mistakes you've made in the past, regardless of where your children are now, trust in the Lord. He is good. He is gracious. Let's pray together. Almighty God, this passage is confusing at first, and as we begin to understand the background of this passage, it becomes a hard passage to bear. But then when we look above this passage and look to the God in whom we trust, that You are always goodness, that You delight in showing mercy, that You are gracious to sinners like us. Lord, we are filled with hope, with trust, and with joy in You. Please hear our prayers and help us in our families. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.